What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans, joined today by either are you the granddad today or uncle? no? Um, what should I be today? Cousin. Yeah, like distant cousin. Yeah, second cousin. The second cousin who's like, why are you in the Christmas party? Sort of. Yeah. Guy. He's turned up for Christmas dinner again. Not even our cousin. He's next door cousin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're also joined by the Desolation Radio Middle East correspondent Beth McKernan. Quick shout out to everyone who's donated on Patreon. Uh, it's got to the amount now where we can hire full time a foreign correspondent to cover yeah. absolutely every just you know yeah, we'll, we'll everything. Sounds great to me. I mean, yeah, all expenses paid. And we're also recording live from, from Barry for the first time from Bethan's Bethan's mum's house, my grandma's house, Bethan's grandma's house. Yeah. So shout out to Bethan's uh, mum and grandma there <laughs> for being so accommodating. And Bethan, of course, welcome, Bethan. Absolutely, nice to be back. How long have you been back for? Um, got the train from London this afternoon, but I've been in the country since the weekend, here for two weeks. Anything happened in the Middle East that's going to affect your Christmas? Or? <laughs> yeah, funny you should mention that. I was just uh, panicking about finishing everything I need to do before Christmas anyway, and uh, yesterday there were these, there were suggestions that Trump was going to pull the 2000 US Special Forces in Syria out. I kind of dismissed it because he's threatened it before, but then he tweeted that he was going to do it. And I went, oh, shit, that is literally... He's going to do it. He's going to do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, poor Kurds, but also my Christmas is completely ruined. So thanks a lot. Thanks for that, Trump. Like, probably the worst part about it. He could have waited, waited two weeks, is what I'm saying. Like, give us a bit of notice, but yeah. Yeah, that's not ideal. Um, no more operators in Syria with their hardcore beards. It's like the ultimate thing you can be if you're on the right in America is to be an operator. Yeah. Nate, how was your Christmas? It was good. Uh, we recording. Christmas hasn't been, but how? Well, foolish, I opened uh, my main present straight away, and I was testing that in Heathrow Airport earlier. What was it? Oh, it's like this. This it's like a camera, right? But it's like a really good selfie camera, yeah. so you can take you, you, like your picture really far, like big heights. So I was like, oh well, I won't be like so narcissistic and vain. So I was just taking pictures of all the planes. And like all the crowds and stuff, there's loads of crowds there. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Oh, no. It's, glad it went well, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go down tomorrow, I think, again. Yeah, keep, I think just keep playing with it, just get better and better. Yeah, it. I'm trying to get higher and higher, like, and get, like, inside of, like, jet engines, like, taking, like, intricate pictures, like, I love those them in work. photos. Yeah, yeah, like, trying to make my own manual then. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going well. Beth, and do you think this is, like going to open a massive new sort of front that the fact that the americans are pulling out of kurdish areas essentially are the turks just going to roll in now definitely didn't it again say something already like we're going to crush them like I don't know, bury them in their trenches or something like that yeah he did i mean again like erdogan's been threatening this for a while and he did go into a little bit of kurdish syria earlier this year so there's been you know it's precedent for it but um he's been threatening it for ages and the u.s is this bulwark against him doing it yeah but obviously now he has a lot of leverage because of Khashoggi. So this wasn't a decision that got made that the State Department knew about, oh, or the Pentagon shit. knew about, or the National Security <laughs> Council knew about. And all of those, all the people within those organiz- within those departments have been like scrambling to try and reverse this. But Erdogan called Trump and basically said, 
you need to pull your troops out, like you said you were going to, because we're going into Syria and we're going to like attack the Kurds. Yeah, it's weird. It's basically, Syria is almost eight years old and it's not over by any means, but at this point in time, it did seem like the current front lines and the demographics yeah, were kind we're... of set at this point. So this decision is just going to completely like turn the table over again. But what will happen with it? I mean, what's the relationship between, I mean, presumably the Turks are going to go in, you know, essentially do their thing, like ethnically cleanse all the towns. What's the relationship between like, you know, the, the Turks and, for example, the Syrian Arab army that are, would there be any confrontation between them or is, are they nowhere to be seen? <clears throat> so what will probably happen is that the Turks will push the Kurds either into Iraq and cause a displacement crisis there. And they're already dealing with the last one from ISIS. And they're kind of being bombed by the Turks as well. So great. Like it's a war on three fronts, basically. Or they're going to push the Kurds south towards regime areas or like this, these little pockets that ISIS still have. Which means that either the Kurds are going to have to make some kind of deal with the regime um, and reconcile with the regime. In which case you then get Syrian army and other you know loyal militias and um, Iranian-backed militias and Hezbollah and stuff will then push north to meet the Turks. So that's going to be a new, you know, kind of open front. Do you reckon that will what like as in a confrontation that'll be between like well the the, Tur- and... the Turks like it won't just be like Turkish troops. I mean there'll yeah, be Turkish like, air Turk power and, and yeah there'll be Turkish air power and tanks and they'll be they'll be around. But the people actually doing the fighting are going to be a lot of moderate. Syrian sunny groups that they've already been backing throughout the whole war, right? Yeah. But those guys are all at the moment stuck in this tiny pocket in Idlib. And some of them are really genuinely good people who've just been buffeted by the rest of the war over the last eight years. And some of them are not very good people. And they're going to then, yeah, basically spread into all these Kurdish areas. And you've just, again, got like massive, massive demographic change. And on top of that, yeah, you've got, so yeah, you're looking at new open war fronts you've got netanyahu and israel saying that the us is pulling out so we're going to step up our operations in syria as well because we need to combat iran the us is hoping that turkey will be a buffer against iran but they're already kind of close anyway and they want to draw turkey out of like russia's circle but yeah it's just a really stupid decision (laughs) there's like in no way that it furthers what the us wants in syria at all it literally makes ISIS happy, it makes the regime happy, it makes Turkey happy, it makes Iran happy, and it completely screws over their partners on the ground who've been the Kurds, who've been putting in like the heavy lifting and the legwork and getting killed in the fight against ISIS. And I think they've always kind of known that this day would come and yeah. they'd be... Contrasting with Americans. Like, it's... Yeah, and they know that, but... I don't think anyone expected it would be like this sudden and this, you know, it's literally like an abandonment. Yeah. yeah. So how, how, I mean, when are they pulling out? So the State Department scrambled yesterday after Trump made all his statements. Um, they cancelled their usual briefing because they were so blindsided. And then they later came along and said that the troops will come out within 60 to 100 days, which seems like quite a long time to me because there's only about 2,000 of them. I imagine in reality it'll be a bit quicker. But then Turkey will move. I hope they'll probably get about a 48 hours heads up before that happens, depending on whether Turkish military sources want to like tell journalists that it's happening before it happens. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's not really in Erdogan's interest to do it over Christmas and New Year because like the whole West is not really looking at the news or following anything. 
And I kind yeah. of, I think he wants the glory. Like, I think he wants people to know that he's going off to defeat terrorists in northern Syria. Or, you know, that's what he calls them. We're going to talk a bit later about the Welsh connection to the war, but just so interestingly, I don't know if we talked about this in the last one, but loads of Welsh regiments within loads and loads of uh, train exercises of the Turkish army. Like, loads. Loads and loads. So there's, we're nicely complicit in that as well. Well, they're a NATO country. That's the yeah. problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, ultimately, this, they're our partners. Yeah. You know? And obviously, you know, the Turkish military has like a massive contingent of essentially fascists and the grey wolves in them, don't they? So they're, I don't know, it's just, they're, 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 the whole thing sort of terrifies me, to be honest. But anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, Kurdistan. Um, I thought you were going to say we're not here to talk about anything depressing, but <laughs> that, that is not true. Welcome no. to my life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're here to talk today, today about the war in Yemen, which is a much uh, more cheerful subject. Um, <laughs> and it's one... I think it's quite an unusual conflict because it's been raging for a long time. Almost four years. And unlike the Syrian war, I think you alluded to in our last podcast, Western journalists have really struggled to sort of get inside and cover the war. So it's almost no one really knows what's going on. So, Bethan, please explain to us the war in Yemen. <laughs> Spark notes, Yemen. Oh in God. ten <laughs> words or less. Okay, so like, how did, how did the war start? The current war, it's always had like quite a lot of civil wars going on. Yeah. It's not a very like stable place. But the current war started because there were lots of uprisings in the Arab Spring um, against uh, the old president who was legitimately, you know, very bad, corrupt man who ruled Yemen, I think, for about 30 years before he ended up having to leave. But there were lots of popular uprisings that kind of morphed into things that looked a bit more militarised. And then there was actually two years of really productive dialogue between these different groups and it lasted ages and it really did look like they were getting somewhere and there was going to be a new constitution and stuff and everybody was very hopeful in about 2014 that maybe there was going to be a proper you know arab spring realization of these hopes and dreams uh and then instead <laughs> uh the old president whose name is saleh he was outraged at being out of power so he sidled up to the houthis who are a rebel group from the north who are nominally um zaidi like they're shia and they're traditionally enemies because he'd been like you know the state had been waging you know like waging guerrilla war against the state for decades at this point but um he sided up to them and sort of went hey guys wouldn't you like to be in charge or how about you know you bring your you bring your guns and your you know actually pretty good guerrilla tactics at this point and we'll just march on the capital sanaa and we'll just take it over and then we'll be in charge and that is basically what happened in 2000 and beginning of 2015. Wow. So the government had to flee and the government flew next door to Saudi Arabia and they asked their partners in Saudi Arabia um, to launch the campaign to help restore the exile government. But obviously it didn't go that well. And now almost all those front lines are stalemates and it's a humanitarian disaster. And here we are. So, so yeah, so previously Yemen has been ethnically divided or or divided along religious lines is it or i mean is the government that fled sunny or no um it's mixed i mean it's nominally sunny but yemen is um i don't know like even calling it like a state is um a bit of an overstretch it's basically a bunch of different tribes that interact and overlap in different ways no one ever really felt that loyal to you know, the idea of like Yemen. You know, it wasn't yeah. something that you'd like live and fight and die for. It was, you know, 
everything on that kind of macro level never really made that much sense. I mean, I'm probably being like orientalist there and just reducing it all to what like this like Western view of like oh it's just like Shias versus Sunnis, but yeah, it's obviously fine. no. I mean, it's really hard to to understand and it's really hard to explain. And I I still know nothing, right? Like I still will talk to Yemeni friends and I'll realize that. I had no idea of the context of like this family and that family and these these allegiances change all the time right so I'm very much not you know an expert but I'm I'm learning <laughs> and I've been so you know it's it's on the ground learning is is useful right but yeah it it's not really a sectarian there's a dimension to it like if you want to talk about where the Houthis come from right like yeah they are there's AD and they kind of evolved in response to Wow, Yemen is complicated. It was no <laughs> I was reading the new socialist piece on it. Okay, weird interlude time. So Dan's going to read from a new socialist article about the history of Yemen. Enjoy. Okay, so luckily I was reading a new socialist article on Yemen, which is called Britain's War on Yemen. It's by David Waring. It's really, really good. And we'll tweet it out when we sort of tweet the, the new episode. But it, it focuses, I guess, on like, Britain's role in it in Yemen and obviously how the Brits have have screwed up the place like they've screwed up pretty much everywhere but it's a really it provides a really good and well really in-depth albeit sort of baffling well the situation's baffling it's a it's a good overview of the historical development of of Yemen which I will now read out verbatim okay so basically Yemen hasn't always been a united country so they used, so it basically was divided into the north and the south. And southern Yemen, which includes the port, the really strategic, strategically valuable port of Aden, was held by the British Empire from 1839 until 1967. And then throughout the 60s, the British actually fought a quite a brutal secret and uh, counterinsurgency campaign, which is really unknown in the UK, but it was like, you know, the SAS killing people in plain clothes. Like, you know, basically some of the stuff they were later to do in Northern Ireland. You know, the RAF would bomb villages torturing people, all the usual stuff that, you know, that we don't do, apparently. So this is going on in the south of Yemen. And then meanwhile, in the north of Yemen, which is independent, there's a coup in 1962 against the monarch Imam Mohammed al-Badr, and that resulted in the creation of an Arab nationalist Yemeni republic. Because if you think about the time, you know, Arab nationalism used to be a, a very big thing. You know, Ba'athism, Iraq, Egypt, all these countries used to be run by Arab, you know, pan-Arab nationalists. Um, so... They created the Arab nationalist Yemeni Republic, and then the royalist forces like rallied, and there was a civil war. And basically, what happened was Nasser, who was the Arab nationalist ruler of Egypt, who Suez Canal sort of thing. Um, they supported the not the uh, space station. No, not the space station. N A S E R. So um, yeah, so Nasser Abdel Nasser supported the Republicans, and then the Saudis. So that you know they're intervening now. But they intervened back in the day and they backed the monarchists. So basically, and, and obviously the, the Brits backed the Saudi, Saudi-backed Saudi royalists, yeah? But then obviously in 1967, Egypt goes to war with Israel, gets hammered basically, and then it has to pull out of Yemen uh, or the north of Yemen. But the, the Republic in the north nonetheless remains in place. And then also in 1967, the British were actually forced to withdraw from Aden, so in southern Yemen because they'd been defeated by the Marxist National Liberation Front, who established in the People's Democratic Republic of Southern Yemen. And they were actually committed to the overthrow of all Arabian Peninsula monarchies, which is obviously, as we can all agree, a very noble goal. So with the north and south of Yemen divided, the Saudis obviously then 
start to see the Marxists in the South as a greater threat, and they began backing their old foes, the Republicans, in the North. And so the Saudis then responded to this like Marxist threat by beefing up their armed forces, especially their air force. And uh, Waring says they coup-proofed the regime against the threat of nationalist officers taking over in Saudi. So that's maybe historically why Saudi, who, as we'll see, is one of the main players in Yemen, has historically resisted sort of pan-Arab nationalism or indeed any sort of coups. And so the Brits, obviously, at the time started that in the 60s. That's when the Brits started arming and supporting the Saudis and sort of the hardline Islamist uh, regime there. So the Cold War is winding down. Obviously, I'm not reading. Obviously, this is this is me literally reading off the, the paper. So in 1990, Yemen was unified. So we have the unification of the North, the capitalist North or capitalistic with the socialist South. Okay, so after the unification, the new sort of Republic of Yemen tried to remain neutral when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. And what happened then? Obviously, the Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia were opposed to Iraq invading Kuwait because they saw in Kuwait, you know, themselves. And so they basically expelled 800,000 Yemeni workers. That was from Saudi Arabia and another 50,000 from other Gulf monarchies in a sort of act of collective punishment. And that was a major blow to Yemen's economy because there was so many sort of guest workers sending money back to Yemen. And so the population got swelled then with all these workers coming back who were out of work. In 1994, there was a secessionist movement in the south which attempted to break away, but the north sort of reasserted its control after a brief civil war. And yeah, that's it, basically. I guess the point is that, you know, Yemen's always been this sort of divided. That's the history of what we now know as modern Yemen before it was destroyed again. Great stuff, Dan. Absolute hero. Back to the episode. And it, was, it wasn't South Yemen, the communist insurgency. Yeah. Um, in Aden, wasn't it Aden, called Aden previously? Yeah, and Aden, Aden was the capital of South Yemen, and the British owned that basically. Yeah, and yeah. that was like the last, one of the last conflicts where like the British used like probably that was the S- where the SAS had those like secret battles against like the communists and so on. Yeah, it's a huge untold story. Yeah, yeah so the British that. are probably complicit in a bunch of stuff. That's yeah, the there, British are. Like, yeah, the British are, a lo- are responsible for. A ever since they got their hands sticky in that Sykes Pickle act, they, uh, they just can't <laughs> put it down, can they? <laughs> just one more piece. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you if you want to talk about right, so so the Iranian Revolution is nineteen seventy nine, and then Saudi Arabia kind of freaks out about it and starts like pivoting to more hardline Islamist sort of both, you know, domestically and foreign policy and, you know, ideologically as well. So that kind of spread over the border into Yemen, right? Which has always been a kind of client state of Saudi Arabia because Yemen is very, very poor. And it's not got any natural resources, is it, compared to the rest of the Middle East? No. Um, It's got loads of fish, like... (laughs) It's got amazing fish, yeah. Um, I don't like fish. No, me neither. That's why Yemen's so poor. (laughs) (laughs) It's got cut, like the drug that actually, yeah, loads of people still using. Oh yeah, yeah, that, even yeah, because yeah, it's um. Oh, it's, you can pick it up in Cardiff, can you? Yeah, but I used to. I bought it when I was younger, but it never did anything. It's just yeah. like a twig. Is it? No, yeah. maybe uh, you got missold. Yeah, no, it's it because was. it's because the cut you grow here is going to be shit cut. All oh, right. Because it needs like a lot of water and you know hot temperatures and stuff. But I can't remember when the UK banned it. Maybe like a decade ago. 
I remember being like a teenager and just chewing on it. I was just like, I'm just eating a twig. I remember being a teenager <laughs> and someone told me you could get high off oregano. So I just used to roll up oregano and smoke it in like a to kind of sagey haze. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just... A sagey haze. Yeah. All the cool kids at the moment um, are smoking cocodamol. Apparently it has the exact same effect. It's like, you know, it's an opioid. Is it? Yeah. So I you, didn't know that. Everyone's got cocodamol tablets, so you just crush them up. thought they were eating Tide Pods. Put on a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's in the States, I think. Ah, Wait, well, I'm sure it'll get here eventually, yeah. won't it? <laughs> yeah, just smoke some cool code well. Yeah. Um, just use Desolation indoors no, message. But just, just, you know how you smoke heroin? Uh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, With a big pipe, like, and uh, recreation. It's just the same way. You just hmm. use the same method, so. Hmm. So you don't need to buy new new instruments to do it? No, then. just use the stuff you use for smoking heroin. Class. <laughs> All right. Good to know what the kids are into these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think but you can people grow cat at home even mm. though it's like technically illegal I mean I don't think you're going to get really banged up for it like it's no. not you know it's it's a stimulant like it's somewhere in between like cocaine and coffee there's that one drugs enforcer who's just been given like the cat duties like where everyone else is doing like weed raids and stuff he's just like you know the one bloke yeah yeah, yeah. Keep, keep in like the streets <laughs> so I mean that's racialized anyway right because it's used by Somali Ethiopian Eritrean yeah. Yemeni communities um, it's, you know, it's huge in Yemen huge but so but apart from that they don't really unlike Saudi Arabia they don't have like massive oil fields it's like no. a bar, barren country no it's a lot of, I mean it's really beautiful um, there's this desert uh, there's a city in the middle of the desert which is called like like the Manhattan of the desert I think it's called Shabam and it's um I think it's about six or seven hundred years old and it's basically like they are skyscrapers if you want to use the term they're like seven eight story buildings built very close together and they're made out of mud brick type stuff because you know it, it was just a really good way of like keeping cool and then like the buildings are really tall so it creates shade on the streets and it is really stunning like, I've never seen anything like it oh awesome and like Yemeni architecture is gorgeous. They like gingerbread houses, and you've got like these sort of um, table mountains in the desert. And... Those nice, uh, were they dragon trees? What they called? Dragon's blood trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy, like they're only in Socotra Island, which is the place I went to in April. Mm. It was a great story. Yeah, I was going to say like uh, you know, girls' holiday. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm. We were really scared before we went because we had no idea what we what we were going to find when we got there. And it's the story is that the Emirates the Emirates have been taking it over and this like soft power. Well, they've turned it into a military base, and the Yemeni government can't really do very much about it. But no one had been since uh, the war broke out. So a videographer friend and I got a boat from South Oman to the island, and it took three days. And uh, <laughs> it was a boat full of Gujarati fishermen who were really nice, but you know we were two women, and it was a bit like this. Yeah. This is actually something we in should. In the open ocean, like yeah, yeah, middle of the Indian Ocean. The implication. And um, we never, we didn't know what we'd expect, what to, find, what we get on, what we find when we got there. We didn't know whether like the Emirates would just like detain us or send us back or you know anything. It's literally a Gujarati fishing boat. It's not you know it wasn't going to leave again for like six days. No. But actually, it was all fine. And I mean. Don't tell my bosses this. They probably won't listen to this. <laughs> but like, what are you on about? <laughs> we reported. We reported the story, which is a fantastic story. You know, when we actually like painted a picture of what it looks like. But also, it was just like being on holiday for two weeks. It was like, oh, these incredible ancient trees that don't go anywhere else in the world. They're, I mean, they're stunning. Mm. I'll, I'll show you pictures. 
Yeah, they're absolutely amazing. So yeah, Yemen's really proud of those. Just reporting from the war in Yemen with like half a coconut, just like yeah. <laughs> coming. Wish, wish you were here, like, like yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was paradise. <laughs> it was literally going to paradise for two and a half weeks, but also it was like technically war zone reporting. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> but yeah, they've got they've got these incredible trees uh, on Socotra, but not much else. Um, they've got a real like water crisis they can barely grow food and the stuff they the water they do have they use for cats so yeah those thirsty cats <laughs> so alright yeah so what you were saying sorry before I cut you off was the sort of the broader geopolitical context whereby it was the Iranian revolution and it was Saudi sort of reacted and you said mm-hmm. you were saying that Yemen has historically been like a client state of Saudi Arabia yeah Yemen has always been buffeted by whatever it is that Riyadh wants they've had very little say about it and even now there's lots of migrant workers in the kingdom next door and that remittance money is really important for Yemen's economy like very very important so yeah they were exporting this um salafist you know jazz um over the border so what <laughs> I'm not gonna say salafi that again Islam, right? oh right like salafi just um you know when you said jazz I thought like the export was just like smooth jazz music like no. All right. Like okay. Hardest, sorry. Hardest set to uh, yeah, smooth jazz. Yeah. No, sorry, it's not what I meant. Um, I just meant all the bells and whistles that go with like yeah. you know hardline sunny, sunny ideology was was being exported over the border and like it's supposed to be spread throughout you know the country. But these Zaidi guys obviously hated that. They felt like they felt like they were politically sidelined anyway. They're from like a very poor, mountainous northern part of the country. Um, sidelined politically they've been I think they were kicked out of government after one of the wars in the 60s or 70s and that's basically when they started you know there's a lot of resentment there against the state or like you know the state of modern Yemen so the Houthi family ended up becoming the kind of linchpin of this movement back in the 90s and yeah they were sort of growing their own kind of like it became basically like a properly militarized guerrilla movement. You know, they say that they've like taken their lessons from like the Viet Cong and from really, Hez- yeah, and from Hez- I mean, not not personally, obviously, but they like they model themselves on like the Viet Cong and Hezbollah. I mean, Hezbollah they have obvious yeah. kinship yeah. with, right? Because they're both like Shia militias that are like technically fighting, you know, invading forces or what they would say are invading forces. Learn tunnel construction or something. <laughs> Two great movements to copy, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. That's what we base this part on, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, so so they sort of became it was the point where they were actually like a thorn in the state side, right? They were actually targeting politicians, um, there were shootouts, like police and the army had to get involved to kind of like quell it in a lot of places, and they got quite a lot of popular support in the places they're from because they were like, Yeah, you're fighting our corner. Um you know, states ignoring us. This is this is great. So they kind of ebbed and flowed throughout like the nineties and the two thousands, and then the Arab Spring happened. And in this kind of vacuum that existed post the Arab Spring, they were one of the the older, more organised, more military experienced movements that was vying in that space. And they ended up becoming you know quite a big player. And like I say, that was when Salah kind of like came over and whispered in their ear and was like, "Let's join forces." And they did get. There's, there's channels there with Iran, obviously. Iranian influence on them is really overstated. I mean, they are, we are talking like a lot of them are like farmers and like goat herds from the mountains who like have AK 47s. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't actually have any grand stated political or ideological goals, mm-hmm. right? They're just a sort of 
they're formed in opposition to everything else. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons Yemen is so hard to solve now is because people don't even know how to give the Houthis what they want because the Houthis don't know what they want. What was the name of the Taliban? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. In, not in the in the sense but of the Taliban fight the everyone. Same of yeah. Exactly. No, I could uh, be saying this through. There was um one bit they're saying about the old man just signed up to fight. Uh, the fight was he was like sixty or something. He was just like, yeah, do it for me, like. Mrs. Left him like yeah. Kids. All right, yeah, you know what? Fuck it, like yeah, why not? When when the war like the proper properly started, Tehran was basically saying to the Houthi leadership, they were like, don't invade Sanaa, and this and a few other places as well. But seriously, not like winking, like don't. No, no, they were seriously like, don't do it. Actually, don't do it. We are telling you, don't do it. Mm. But they did it anyway. (laughs) And, you know, fair play. I mean, Iran knows how to, knows that these wars are often going to be like long-term things. They have to, like, they have to exploit power vacuums and fragmentary states when they see the chance, right? And they were just a bit like, it's too much, it's too soon, don't get ahead of yourselves, don't do it. And they did it anyway. And that's when proper war broke out, which, to be honest, actually... I don't know if Iran like didn't want it, but they were very happy that Saudi Arabia took that bait and then got involved and yeah. like, ended up in this quagmire. Like it, it almost makes them look good. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, All right. So the Houthi this Houthi movement that marched in the Sanaa, they just to clarify, they were sort of regionally based, or they yeah, were, they're from the Northern Highlands. Yeah. From the Northern Highlands, so they marched in it. And is there any like particular like flashpoint that catalyzes like it's when they actually march on the March on the capital, right? They, I think they got to they got to Hodeida and Sanaa. Um, I think at the end of two thousand and fourteen, but it was the moment when the government left, which is early two thousand fifteen, that marked like you know this is yeah. it, this is full on civil war at this point. Yeah, because the state's essentially collapsing when the yeah. government leaves. us like mm. probably not a good sign, isn't it? No. <laughs> so, uh, so, but how soon after did Saudi Arabia in- invade? March. So the, the bombing campaigns began. Almost immediately, yeah. yeah, to get them out, and they committed troops straight away as well. Yes, but the Saudi army isn't very big and it isn't very good. Yeah, um, Saudi Arabia has like no interest in having like a decent army itself because oh. they don't want the people to rise up against the House of Saud. Right, that's the last thing they want. It's a smart move, isn't it? One of the mad- one of the maddest things I've read about Yemen is the use of like obviously private military contractors it's are used insane, everywhere, isn't it? But like in Yemen, there's yeah. loads of like being lo- loads of like Australians and like Colombians. Loads of Colum- like is, it, is that true? Like Colombia's been killed over there and stuff because there's just almost like whole units made up exclusively of. Well, yeah. I'm trying. Foreign, yeah, I'm trying to write about it at the moment. There's, I mean, there's a couple of like ex, yeah, like ex US military, like really like like decorated mm. people who are now on the ground directing military campaigns. Absolutely not. Well, Saudis just buy anything they want. Yeah. Why? Why Colombians though? But oh, just because they've got a, sur- a surplus of experience. Like, oh right, not not on loan by cartels or anything. No, well. no, no. <laughs> just because it's just this fighting fuck, fighting yeah, who's yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, Sinaloa is like <laughs> no, there's no no transatlantic, uh, but that'd be cool though. Yeah, Maybe can you imagine? Plot of the next, uh, and you you've got it like on the like proper um, like cannon fodder levels as well, yeah. right? Like the ground troops that the Saudis have put in, like are like so many of them are Sudanese, like really? hundreds of Sudanese are dying in Yemen. And that's a story that nobody's really talking about or cares about. And it's caused great anger in Sudan. There's riots and protests there at the moment. Jesus. Right. And so originally, the, it seemed from, from Twitter um, that the Houthis were basically winning, right? Like uh, Certainly in terms of the infantry skirmishes and stuff. As you said, it seemed as if the Saudi army just wasn't very good. 
Yeah, I mean... But they obviously had overwhelming air support. Yeah, the Saudi army is not particularly great. The main player that's kind of surprised everyone in this conflict is the United Arab Emirates. Mm. And this is, yeah, it's kind of what my Socotra story touched on, is that they have these huge ambitions to become, you know, like a global military power, which is kind of born, like, post the Arab Spring, like, all of these autocratic leaders start to freak out a little bit about their futures and about how to maintain control. And the Emirates is very stealthy and clever compared compared to Saudi um, in many ways. But they decided, yeah, we're going to properly heavily invest in becoming like a, you know, a proper military state because then Western powers have to take us seriously and, you know, we can offer actual on the ground movements if if that's, you know, if there are wars that they want to fight in the future. Um, And the people will stay afraid of us and... If there's ever fighting over like oil shipping channels with Iran in the Persian Gulf, then yeah, again they'd be they'd be prepped for it. So when the Emirates started putting their soldiers in, what on the side of the yeah. Saudis? Yeah, yeah. So the coalition that is fighting to restore what is the internationally recognised like legitimate Yemeni government, as useless as it is, is like nine different countries, but the two main ones are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And when we talk about the war, right, we always talk about like the Saudi-backed coalition. Everyone knows the Saudis are the bad guys, but actually the Emirates are just as bad and we don't really name them as much. Like they've been much cleverer about, about they know how to play like the PR thing. They know how to, they know how to stay out of the headlines a lot of the time. They, so, they have foreigners in like huge hugely important roles in their army as well don't they yeah like just colonels and stuff in america i'm sure they're brits i'm sure they're british i'm working on a story about some brits yeah just running whole units over there just like retire from the british army and take up a position and ludicrously well paid yeah some kid on work experience like (laughs) but no it's like it's uh it's it's an unbelievably lucrative uh Reti- like not retirement thing, but like why would you, you know, yeah, you know. It's a very lucrative war for a lot of people yeah. on different fronts at this stage, yeah. But when the Emirates came in, I think there was one Al-Qaeda bomb attack that killed a lot of them in one go. I think it was, it was dozens and dozens of soldiers. But they, they've they learnt really quickly and they're actually, you know, proving to be quite shit-hot special forces for what is basically, it was like an untested army. Like they've really like proven they can do this. So they're kind of more, at this point, on the ground, directing ground forces and, and attacks. And the Saudis are sort of like hands off and in the control room in Riyadh dropping the bombs. That's sort of the picture. Of, Division of labour at the moment, the coalition. Yeah. And how is it? So what is the overall picture at the moment? I mean, how has the war swung? It's basically stalemated almost everywhere. The Emirates... So a lot of militias, which again like, are made up of like very poor Yemenis and um, Sudanese and a few other people from other places, have been like very very slowly pushing towards the capital, like going up the Red Sea coast, which is where like most of the main cities are. Like that kind of way it juts out into the sea. They've been slowly making their way towards the capital, but everyone knew that when they got to this city called Hodeida, which has been in the news a lot recently, that that was gonna that campaign was going to have to, something's going to have to shift there because Hodeida is really, really, really important. It's it's basically the main port in the country. And before the war, um, because all anyone was doing in Yemen was growing cut, like 90% of their water, I think, went on cut. So they weren't growing their own food and they had to import 90% of their food. 
Yeah, it's... it's that's a short... That's a short to oh, drug addiction that is, isn't it? Guys looking at the spreadsheet there in front of me like... Yeah. Why, 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 why is everyone so thirsty? Why is everyone... Why is everyone high and thirsty? Wish I could work it out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's actually very arguable that, like, Yama was going to descend into a civil war regardless of international intervention because that, that, you know, Pete was going to run out of food at some point in the near future. Like, famine was probably on the cards anyway. So, yeah, cut. Drugs. Don't do them. They're bad for you. Mm, And, you know, your whole whole country. (laughs) Um, So, Hodeida is, like, the main port. And even before the war started... 80% 80% of all the commercial goods and fuel and food that went into Yemen came in through Hodeida. Now, the Houthis are in control of Hodeida and they have been since 2015, which is not great. Like, they're not they're not good people. Like, they are, like, you know, the the less uh, well-equipped, like, side in this war, but they are still, like, they've Did, done horrific things. Didn't like, they boot out Al-Qaeda uh, quite early on? Um, in a few places, yeah, but these alliances change all the time yeah like they've been like ground militias that the americans technically sponsor that have been like teaming up with al-qaeda to fight the houthis and vice you know it's it's yeah it's nuts it's absolutely nuts as we know as well al-qaeda has done nothing to the americans ever <laughs> um, right, so that, that's been that kind of been the new epicenter of the war or that's the it new, is now yeah it is now yeah it, ha- it has been for the, like the last couple of months yeah actually <laughs> um there's this really important governor in central yemen whom i've met who is basically like he's a glorified warlord but he's you know like he's lost the government like he's helped boot al-qaeda out of a lot of places but his brother was it coney <laughs> yeah his brother is on like u.s terrorists for being like an al-qaeda financier oh, cool. no way and i'm like and I asked her, I was like, so, you know, this, this list that your brother's on, yeah. how does this tally with what you're doing? I'm very confused here. And he was like, oh, it's nonsense. It's nothing. They just got it wrong. And I mean, they do. They do get a lot wrong. But yeah, it's just, there are a lot of people that have probably been like ex-Al-Qaeda in like the 2000s who've now become like pretty legitimate, like, yeah. you know, leaders. In just like they got clean and like, Rebellious you know. teenage. Yeah. Teenage phase. Everyone goes there, you know, start smoking, oh. John Al Qaeda, like. <laughs> but yeah, you go the straight and narrow, become an accountant, like. Yeah. Hmm. Um, all right, so the, so who's winning the Battle of Hededa? So this is like full on, you know, like flu just style urban warfare. Yeah, so Yemen hasn't really seen like proper large scale urban warfare to date. Um, there was Arden, which the, Emir- the Emirates took back quite early on, but it mm. was actually. In the end, in the end, I think the actual assault was quite quick. It was like three days, and the Houthis pulled out. I'm not saying it wasn't awful; like a lot of people died, course, but yeah. um, you know, technically. So yeah, Hodeida is this really densely populated city. It's like six hundred thousand people. It's more akin to like Mosul or Raqqa, actually. Mm. Like it's it's like a city being held by bad people who are not going to leave. Like they are not going to leave. There is nothing you can do to get them out. And they are going to use people as human shields. They're in control. There have been airstrikes on Hodeida intermittently. The whole the whole way through the war, which killed people. I mean, several have landed in hospitals. You know what I mean? Like, it's literally got one functioning hospital at the moment. But the troops got kind of so close to Hodeida and then they realised that we can't actually destroy like this port and this city. Because if we destroy the port, the port is even a little bit damaged and those goods stop coming in, then Yemen is going to starve. Yeah. Like, it's already starving. Like, the idea that, you know, everyone keeps saying oh, it's on the edge of famine. I mean... It already is a famine. It's mm. just like numbers are very hard to come by. And I mean, how many people need to 
it's, it's the largest mass starvation in like modern history already so i don't know like what defining it as a famine like how much difference that's going to make at this point but um yeah if you just if you damage hodeida or at least the port facilities then yeah the whole country is going to i don't know if you can come back from that at that point like it's it's worse than anything i've ever covered before intractable problem for the uh the coalition then like what you do you can't yeah you have to you have to take it but you can't just destroy it yeah very difficult and the houthis have listed it with landmines is it thousands of landmines is a political compromise or is that possible is it feasible well even the americans don't want a famine on their watch right um well um these troops kind of got to the outskirts of Hodeida in the summer and that was when the worries really started rumbling like oh shit are they actually going to do this They've, so, they've shown so little disregard for civilian life and other aspects of this war, it's very possible that they are just going to do this. Because they think, they take Hodeida, it's like a clear straight path to Sanaa, which it is. And then they take Sanaa and then the war's done. Yeah. So they think they can pull out, they think they can go home. But obviously it's never going to be as simple as that. But they do really, really, really want this city. Um, and they kept sort of looking like they were going to launch a full-blown assault, but then pulling back because the international community and the UN would sort of stop saying, you can't do this, you're literally going to drive the country into mass, mass starvation. It's 28 million people, and three quarters are already dependent on aid to survive. Half of them are already starving. So you then damage the port that 80% of those goods come through. I mean, it doesn't take a genius, right? You know, even the coalition are like, you know, we can't feasibly do this and, like, win the PR war here. But on the, I know it sounds awful, but on the other hand, I mean, like, the international community has been so silent and complicit in this already. You, you, you almost think, like, well, would they? I mean, I, I just don't, I don't think people would care. I don't think the, the UK would care. I don't think America would, like, I just I can't see it. I can't see it. If it gets to this as bad as it is already... Yeah. As you said, this scale of it, it's like it's only a, a little bit more. But there from... is there is political, there is this consensus now for some kind of political compromise, right? And if you told me that six months ago, I would never have believed that there'd been this much movement on the um, political scheme of things as there has been in the last couple of weeks. And all of that is because of Khashoggi. Like, the way, like, that man's death has implicated, has, like, changed everything. Like, everything in the Middle East is absolutely mind-blowing all they had to do was just chop one guy up and that yeah and it's all solved like yeah well or not it is it's crazy it's absolutely crazy because i mean you can i mean we can go back and forth over the weather like you know he was should have been the straw that broke the camel's back or not like of course not but um but the fact of the matter is as a result Saudi Arabia is being scrutinized in a way that it hasn't been since 9-11 and that has created like real international community like momentum and pressure to actually do something about Yemen and it's amazing like I'm all for it like I mean yeah be cynical whatever if it actually means that something happens then fine that's that's great so yeah there's been the first round of peace talks since 2016 were held earlier this month beginning of December in Sweden, and the Houthis didn't show up to the last ones, and they actually came to these ones. I mean, because they know as well, right? They know they're going to get pulverised if Hodeida yeah. gets taken, and then they know that they'll push on to Sanaa, and then they know that they're going to lose, so it's in their interests at this point to negotiate as well, but, you know, they're not very good at it. They don't really know what they want. So... Cat. <sighs> yeah. That's literally, literally that's all it is. 
The, 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 <laughs> the, 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 the day the day in Yemen is structured around like the kachu. That's what it's called. Class. Like kachu curry, like. <laughs> Blazer, like. It'd probably be quite nice. It's quite bitter. Is it? Yeah. You like you'll get up in the morning before the sun gets really hot and like you know do whatever, maybe do a bit of business, do some work. Mm. Then you'll go home for lunch, and then after lunch it's really hot, so you just like sit at home and you go visit friends and like you chew cut, and then like. You just get huge groups of men. It's like a really, it's like the, what you do instead of like going to the pub, basically. Um, and the more you bucks. chew, like the more of like a zone you get into, and then everyone's in the same kind of zone, and you just talk politics and you talk like gossip, and you just, it's, it's amazing. Like, and they'll stay there for hours, hours and hours and hours, like until the sun goes down. Stay up really late. I'm surprised they got time for fighting then, really. They don't. Like, the, everything stops for cut. Like, one of the only things that gets over the front lines easily are, like, cat shipments. Honestly. Like, guns, people, aid, rest of it. Like, either the Houthis or, like, Yemeni ground troops are going to, like, give the drivers a hard time and check everything. But cut is allowed. <laughs> well, there was, that, there was that one shipment that got set on fire, wasn't it? And, like, all the people were, like, uh, all, like, it was about to be set on fire because it was seized and then um, they in put my like, story yeah yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. they put like um, no, I'm not going to explain well, Emirates, your story to you like. <laughs> the, em- the Emirates hate cut right because yeah. it's it destroys productivity I mean, it has fucking destroyed Yemen like already so you know there's a reason to get rid of it so the Emirates don't let any of the troops loyal to them chew it they've like banned it in a lot of places which the Yemenis hate but you know but the for the houthis yeah that's that's pretty much all they do right i was i was like asking people when this q80 jet took them to sweden for the peace talks i was like are they bringing their own cuts because i've checked and it's definitely also illegal in sweden (laughs) and apparently they did like they bought bags of it (laughs) just drops drop off in amsterdam like (laughs) picks them up on your way so what we haven't talked about is Amazing, our amazing Welsh connection. Yeah. So for all you've listened, but so obviously, far. I mean, the 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 one that's been in the news, I guess, was the um, either fact that Saudi pilots. I mean, so naturally, the Saudis are. It's it's the bombing which has caused the famine, as well as the blockade and and the lack of food, right? So yeah, and I mean, the Houthis, like we can't discount like their role in it. Like they have also like siphoned off aid shipments and like they they arrest and torture dissidents and journalists. Like they are bad people, but. Yeah, the coalition blockades are like what's really, really screwing the country. And basically, Saudi pilots it emerged are being trained in RF Valley in Anglesey. And then when when this was raised in the Senate, Alan Davis, the Welsh minister, and Carwin Jones, I think, said defence isn't devolved, so we don't have an opinion on it. But we're really happy that like the British military trains in North Wales, which was just like unbelievably shocking. But so part of the course because. If you listen to our militarism episode, you'll see the extent to which the Welsh government sort of based its some of its economic strategy around like the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. But perhaps the other element is the Welsh Yemeni community. And as you said, because Yemen is such a it's a poor country, but it's also a, a seafaring country. It's like famous for seafaring. But Yemeni, yeah, fishing. But, but yeah. Yemeni sailors are some of the first people, non-white people, to settle in Cardiff in Butte Town, and that's you know for. Probably over 100 years. Yeah, I think the first mosque in the country was built in Cardiff at like the end of the 18th century for the Yemeni community. Yeah, so we've always always had a massive Yemeni community. And one of the things that you're looking into, Beth, now is how the war in Yemen has sort of impacted on the Yemeni community in Cardiff. And I know you've got a story coming out about this, you can't (laughs) tell all, but just give us a little brief overview. 
I mean, it's a really weird situation for people to be in, isn't it? You're like at home in Cardiff getting WhatsApp messages from relatives right. who are trapped in Hodeida right now or somewhere else yeah. and there's coalition bombing, which, you know, it's completely... Um, they say that they only target military facilities, but, you know, we all know that's not how it really works. And there's like, what can you do? I mean, I'm in touch with families who've been pressuring or asking the FCO to help them get their families out. And they've been met with almost nothing. Like there's this stock line that they just get back in emails all the time, which is just that the British government like has no consular um, facilities in Yemen and we'll do what we can, but we have very limited ability to do anything, which is true to an extent, but you're not talking... I don't know, you're talking like British nationals who got caught up in something like this, like not because they travelled there um, knowing it was dangerous. You know, they were there in 2015 when it all kicked off and they've been stuck there ever since. You know, like they can easily, well, not, they could, it's feasible they could like drive to like the Saudi or the Omani border and get picked up by a, an FCO, like British government official who could like help them. That's not, that's not impossible. And all these request just seems to be falling on deaf ears and it makes you know this community who's been in wales for such a long time you're a bit like well are we not as welsh as other people like you know we're told constantly to integrate and we're very aware of like our differences because it seems to be all the media ever focus on but also you know you're telling us our lives are not as worth as much as other lives and yeah like you say those saudi pilots being um trained in north wales you know right now and they're in the south just you know those pilots go home and then they drop bombs that kill their families you know we're very complicit so it's it's a very frustrating position for a lot of people to be in i think yeah i mean it, it's wild because the welsh government on the one hand will say oh you know what why aren't for so if you look at the statistics people of middle eastern heritage um, and non-white heritage in wales are far less likely to feel welsh than people who are born in wales of, of and who are white like almost to a far greater degree than people who aren't white in Scotland, which suggests there's a massive problem with like how Welshness is perceived. And we know that Welshness is seen as being ex- exclusionary. And it's, hila- it's, well, it's not hilarious, it's tragic, because you know, the, on the one hand, the Welsh government is sort of scratching their head, like, oh, you know, why you know, why aren't people in like inner city Cardiff like, relating to Welshness? And then on the other hand, someone will table a question in the Senate about the bombing in Yemen and the bombing of their communities. And it's essentially laughed off by the same Welsh government. The Welsh government also um, promote the prevent agenda, which is as we know, essentially, like, encouraging Muslim communities to tell on each other and sort of, it's just horrific. It goes, um, yeah, it's it's really pervasive. It's, like, school teachers and, like, nursery school teachers asking to, like, flag kids as young as three. Yeah, and and often we know that the prevent has been utilised and it's essentially people who would basically question US or British foreign policy. That's people who get can get stuck on a watch list. Are people pissed off then, would you say? Massively, but I think... You know, as we see, as we've seen, like, you know, when um, ever, like, Neil McAvoy tries to get anything tabled, it doesn't go anywhere, right? It's it's these these institutions that supposedly exist to hear your concerns and your problems and change them and represent you don't go anywhere. But I think, um, I think that anger is really strong, but it's secondary to, like, the worry that people course, are yeah. going through every day. I mean, at this point, it's like it's starting to like really screw with people's mental health, right? Because you're like just constantly worried about someone far away and you can't do anything about it. Like it destroys you. So it's just, I don't know, sadness really. And just part of you is like, do I 
do I write off, do I like prepare for the worst and write off never seeing my family members again? Or do I continue to struggle and hope when nothing's changing and nothing I've tried has worked and I think I've exhausted all those avenues? It's like, you know, it's an impossible situation to be in. It's horrific. People ask me a lot, you know, like, how can we help? How can we stop it? And I mean, there's only, you can donate to certain charities like UNICEF are doing really good work so is Islamic Relief, you know, like all the main ones you'd think of, are, are, you know, on the ground, like they are, they are making a really huge difference. And it is, a, it is at such a crisis point that everything does help. And like with everything, unfortunately, chucking money at it is often like the best way to solve something. But yeah, people ask like, oh, this is so terrible. And I had no idea that we were so involved and we sell all the weapons and we train all the pilots and, and like, Gavin Williamson, etc., just like, oh, you know, at least it's us doing the bombing and um, not doing the bombing, but at least it's us, you know, helping our allies um, with targeted, um, you know, high tech, sophisticated um, precision, though, yeah. precision bombing <clears throat> um, equipment, right? When actually, you know, there was a school bus yeah. in, um, in a Houthi area this summer which killed. I think fifty children. It's unbelievable. It's actually it was yeah. There's there's that segment, isn't it? They're saying that like the, um, one of the kids who got because they were on a school trip. One of the kids who'd gone on the school trip before wasn't on the bus. Just spent like every day visiting like basically graves, the of, graves his of his friends and his teachers. Because just like and to put that on a, like not to put it on a kid as if it you know, but it's just you, you can't even fucking fathom that happening to an adult, can you? Let yeah, alone like a kid. Who, yeah, and imagine having to see your friends and relatives over here. For me, like the whole thing, the whole thing. I mean. I, Obviously, ultimately, it stems from the the sort of Tory foreign policy. But I get I get so angry at this how hollow like Welsh Labour like this like they always talk about being like internationalists, and when it comes down to it, they're just complete militarists and just don't give a shit about people. I mean, and even when I mean we've tried on the podcast to draw attention to the fact that they're training. Um, you know, Alan Price tabled it in the Senate and said, "Oh, they're training Saudi pilots in North mm-hmm. Wales," and no one cared. Like Welsh Labour grassroots didn't say anything. Um, whilst they were in the Senate, like endorsed it, and there was like a tiny, like a tiny sort of vigil by local peace uh, campaigners in North Wales. So like, kudos to those people. But I mean, apart from that, it just doesn't doesn't resonate. And there's so many people in Wales who claim to be like progressive, and when this complicity of like Welsh society is pointed out, it's just no one really gives a shit. Ah, uh, Wales are fucking dumb. <laughs> I don't think that's completely fair. Like, I'm not saying that politicians shouldn't have more interest and follow this stuff more closely than they do especially if it's happening you know under your noses like in your constituencies but yeah there's again there's this sense of powerless powerlessness right which is that defense is devolved so you know what the fuck can the senate do when it's a decision that needs to get made by westminster but um this is the thing like this stuff does cause outrage people are outraged that we're involved and i used to have to fight to get those stories into into the paper and i kept pushing them as like it being a moral cause as opposed to like a page views cause like the argument was no one reads it yeah mm. it's like well yeah, it's just been like such an obscure conflict for ages yeah like and that. it's really complicated conflicts it is like, it's really hard to follow there's no obvious like good guys and bad guys i mean with isis they had such like an effective pr team essentially that you know you could just see like the horrific things they were doing and like it was yeah, you know newsworthy yeah yeah there was like a strict kind of division yeah. wasn't it yeah and you know it's been very difficult for journalists to get in for ages and like Yemen is a very, very poor place. And, you know, I said this when I spoke on the Guardian podcast, but I won't say this on this mm. podcast. But um, and I, I have talked about before how 
a lot of activists and a lot of Yemenis who are now outside the country, like they really hate the description of Yemen as um, like the poorest country in the Arab world. They hate it. They think it's really reductive, mm. which, you know, on one level, I do get that. But on another level, like it just like poverty changes everything. Like it colors everything in that country yeah. and all of its problems ultimately stem from the fact that it's a very poor place that's not doesn't really have a middle class you know so those narratives never got out like to the international community the same way that they did with syria for example and, and obviously the inter- it colors the international community's response because there isn't yeah. there, there, there's no reason for them to invade there's, there's no, no oil yeah but there's also no refugees showing up on europe's doorstep either right like if there was actual palpable visible yeah. effects of this conflict like people were actually showing up and claiming asylum in Germany, then um, yeah, we would have done something by now. So definitely. where are Yemeni refugees going? Are they just into? No, they're stuck inside. Some have gone to Djibouti, which is the tiny country over the Red Sea, Gulf of Aden, Gulf of Aden. And incredibly, some really clever people took advantage of the fact there's this tourist island in South Korea that temporarily, like when it opened in an attempt to attract people, got rid of visa waivers. So some really clever Yemenis, like 250 of them, flew to Malaysia, which they're allowed to go to on certain visa regulations. And then from Malaysia, they flew to this South Korean, like, paradise island and, like, have claimed asylum. Genius. Um, well, that. It's ab- I mean, it's absolutely genius, but actually South Korea's been really shit about it. Like, it won't surprise anyone. Like, yeah, no one wants them. But, yeah, like, this is a country of 28 million people. And if they could leave, most of them would have left by now. But they are, like, the country's blockaded. Like, the airspace is controlled by Saudi Arabia. The borders are controlled by Saudi Arabia. The sea is controlled by Saudi Arabia. No one gets out. And that's why the news doesn't get out and the people don't get out. But people, you know, they want to know, well, this is horrific. We sell the weapons. We train the pilots. Like, we have consultants in, like, the bombing control rooms in Riyadh. Like, how do we, like, stop? How do we tell our government, like, we don't want this to happen anymore? And... Even, you know, like the fallout from Khashoggi, this was the thing that kept coming up, right? It was like, we enable the Saudis to do this stuff. Um, we need to cut off relations. We need to stop selling them arms. And ultimately, that is the only thing that will ever change the status quo, is if we stop selling weapons. So... Can't see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> but the political... There is, there is like... There is momentum on the political side of things at the moment, um, which is hopeful. I really yeah. hope by the time this comes out, like this hasn't gone to shit. I, at the yeah. moment, I feel quite optimistic about it. I mean, ultimately, if we had a, I mean, we release it quickly. But just... if, a Cor- you know, <laughs> if a Corbyn government gets in, that's probably the only chance I would say of anything ever changing with regards to Saudi. But yeah, we shall see. He's too busy slagging off women, isn't it? Call them stu- <laughs> stupid bitches, like. Right, Beth. Thanks so much for coming on again, giving up your precious Christmas time to explain the conflict in Yemen. You're very welcome. Mm. I love talking about Yemen. <laughs> Are there any shoutouts or? Beefs or anything you want to start? I think my nan gets a massive shout out Ma- for sure. massive beef donating her front room to us. Yeah, yeah. group shout out to your nan, like yeah, definitely anyone? massive beef. Anyone? Uh, MBS. Yeah, what's that? Mohammed bin Salman. Oh yeah, Prince. yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, because what was mad before the Khashoggi thing? It was like he was. Do you remember his like massive PR campaign that people and it was like literally like advertorials and all the papers in like the US and the UK and 
I'm sure wasn't there one in a Heathrow? It was like it was like his blessed, everywhere. It was like his blessed like prince and welcome prince and all that. And he's changing Saudi Arabia. Yeah. He's the face of yeah, modern Saudi. I bet yeah, he's yeah. never like he's making yeah. the country green yeah, and basically. cutting up journalists. Yeah, but people, <laughs> no, but people, like people in America were just like uh, and the UK just, yeah. just like openly shilling for this guy because it's like a Middle Eastern Trudeau, like because he's put, yeah basically because he's paying <laughs> paying uh, paying for like a paper and so it's just horrific. Um, we'll have to do enough about Saudi Arabia at some point. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Because well, I mean, it is like it's unfair to call everyone and like, like there are a lot of people in Saudi Arabia who like, who like really try to make the country a better place, mm. and like it's not. They're dealing in really difficult circumstances, right? There's a reason the country looks the way it does. But he could have done some good stuff. But hey, it's just a new face for same old thing. Yeah, basically, past revolution. Grim. Nice. Um, Shouts. I don't know. Uh, I was going to start doing my film of the week. I saw Spider-Man earlier than you one. It was really oh, good. good. Yeah, Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. Spider-Man? Yeah, it's really... It's, the animation is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, it's great. That's it, really. Uh, Merry Christmas to everyone who listens. Yeah. Um, Apart from anyone named Robert. Any reason? Or? No, it's just a random name I picked. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> Bye, everyone. All right, cheers. Bye. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, this... This this is one of you. How? Tongyan. Tongyan. Oh, this is him dead. And, and these two. Bakwai Logi. Kaksaka. Yeah, glad I taught you that fucking word. These are whites, huh? White cocksucker. Two white cocksuckers killed him. And stole the dope that he was bringing to you. White cocksucker! You switching! The dope that you were gonna fucking sell to me? White cocksucker! These two white cocksuckers? Who the fuck did it? Who? Who, you ignorant fucking chink? Who? 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 Who stole the fucking dope? Cocksucker! Oh, Jesus.